back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, we're back. We are doing it again. We're doing it again. Welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan and... My my name's David. Yeah, I was just leading into it for you. I was giving you a setup. Oh, okay. Uh, that I, I always do right past me, and I was like, "That I always here. do reliably." Yes, this is Mark's Madness. It's just Nathan this week. I'm just going to read to myself. It'll be very educational. <laughs> You'll enjoy it, I'm sure. No, uh, we're both here as always. Um, coming to you live on the day before Thanksgiving or whatever this bullshit colonial holiday is mm-hmm. um, here in America. Uh, not for our international listeners. Uh, that being said, uh, let us start as we do with current events. David, anything yes. current percolating around there? Uh, yeah, so the biggest thing is I would push people um, to go out and do everything you can to stand up against the USICA. Um, and what that is, is that's an act in Congress right now, the uh, United States Innovation Competition Act. Right? Oh, that thought- sounds ominous. Yeah, the Innovation Competition Act. Why would we need an Innovation and Competition Act? Oh, maybe because this giant other economy is flooring us because we suck and they don't. And we're busy making up every genocide narrative we can find about them instead of actually like reworking our entire economy around the humanity that lives within it. Um so, yeah, we definitely need to do everything we can to push through this incredibly sinophobic bill. This is going to be, you know, it's it's an enormous amount of funding for propaganda, right? I mean, this is, is billions of dollars to, to propaganda and defense, as it always fucking is. And, and it's it's to ramp up sinophobia, uh, to attack China. Um, you know, there's there's shit in there. Um, about, you know, there's, there's the Endless Frontier Act, there's the Strategic Competition Act, uh, there's the Meeting the China Challenge Act of 2021. I mean, these fuckers are just, it's, it's bad things. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's all yeah. very, uh, very on its face this time. No dog it's, whistles at all. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, this is as on its face as when they, they tore up Yugoslavia, except thankfully, I think China's in a little better position to resist this than, than, you know, mid 80s to mid 90s Yugoslavia. Slavia, but um, yeah, I mean, this is this is like a, the huge amount of focus. So, like I said, you know, and militarily, um, the whole pullout from Afghanistan, I still think is more towards you know pivoting to pouring resources into Africom. Um, but uh, I overall, obviously, there's a huge amount ramping up towards you know Cold War against China, right? And and anything they can do any kind of war any kind of of economic warfare or whatever they can do against china you know i mean we've seen it from the hong kong protests and how they recovered we've seen it uh with the the xinjiang narrative um that you know the vocational schools were some kind of genocide against uyghur muslims which has never shown any bit of evidence and i guess they've just moved on past that narrative now that that's old now they've well they've brought, unless they brought you're in to bed yeah, unless, unless you're Ennis Cantor. Ennis Cantor's still very concerned with the with the Uyghur Ennis, genocide. Ennis Cantor is bringing back all the hits, right? Ennis Cantor yeah. is it can't play basketball anymore, so he's he's going full like you know adore the Dalai Lama, right? Um, and and I've seen some stuff in like some European places and stuff like that. They're trying to push the free Tibet thing back, and it's like when the fuck did this turn back into 1981? What the hell is going on here? 
Um, and then, you know, there's, of course, a situation uh, with, and I, I hope I can uh, pronounce her name properly, but Peng Shui, um, who's a famous, famous tennis player who came forward with, and, and we're, we're subject to translation here, okay, came forward with what could be at best a uh, lamenting romantic relationship, but I, I doubt it's that. I don't think she would have come forward as that. What's more likely is it's either uh, accusations of grooming um, or sexual oh. assault. Um, it's a- against one Chinese, you know, uh, official, and that's that's you know not a good thing. Not something you want for for someone to happen. But again, we're we're resting even that on translation, um, which is always tough. Mandarin to English, and you know the sources in the United States don't give a shit. And then taking the most serious aspect of this, or whatever she did experience, whatever she is coming forward about, seriously, is vitally important. That's very different than accusations that she's been disappeared, even in the face of seeing videos of her, and going, well, she's forced to put on those videos for a show. Like, it's it's the saddest fucking propaganda campaign I've ever seen. Uh, from a country that allowed the entire Larry Nasser scandal to happen. From a country where three of the last five presidents have faced multiple sexual assault charges and, you know, from a country that that takes political prisoners all the time uh, to make up that someone has disappeared when they're very, very visible is just absurd. And to once again, just like uh, we do with partisan politics in this country, uh, with the accusations that, that come forth, you know, from from victims of, of U.S. politicians where it's used for partisan political football, um, using this for imperialistic political football instead of genuinely caring about the victim uh, is is another, you know, appalling situation. And and so, you know, we see all of that kind of shit attacking China. And now we see this act to, to ramp up the Sinophobia. Sinophobia is just going out the wazoo, um, as you would expect with a crumbling empire, you know, basically seeing this as a giant game and seeing themselves as losing. Put away your red scare hats, guys, and get back out your yellow peril t-shirts. It's time. That's We're right. doing it again. We're doing it's, it. Was it was it ever anything different though? No, you know, it just it, changed. I mean, I guess technically put away your Islamophobia it, hat and whip out from, your yellow peril t-shirt because I was we just have say, to spin the roulette wheel. I was gonna say it was old school yellow peril, and then it was red scare, which pretty quickly had yellow yellow peril tied in. Uh and then it was you know, uh, Islamophobia, and now it's 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 right back to to kind of a mix of of Red Scare and Yellow Peril. It's yes. it's always always the same fucking goddamn thing about you know it, it's it's Orientalism and anti communism and racism. That's that's what it is. It's always all those things swirled into one, and it just slightly changes. Uh, character and of course you know through that there there's you know the ability to make up whatever the fuck you want about the dprk there was a a thing today i saw variety a magazine that a month ago a month ago had an article that was like oh yeah the dprk i guess it was trying to rip on squid game with this even though it was just a correct assessment of it's like the dprk they they, well, they call it North Korea. In the North Korea, they love uh, Squid Game and how it's critical of the capitalist system in South Korea. And then, like a month later, it, it Variety you, citing Radio Free Asia was the first 
outlet to break this and then everybody else is just citing Radio Free Asia openly, you know, is so that way they're not just citing Variety is doing this. And the and, thing they're citing was that a person, what was, a person had been disappeared for smuggling Squid Game into seven, the DPRK? Seven people were disappeared for smuggling oh. Squid Game in the DPRK and were facing the death penalty. And it's like, wait, first, fuck, come on. I mean, why the hell would they do that? Second, the outlet, the first outlet to take Radio Free Asia's little bullshit story and run with it was the one that a month ago was talking about how the DPRK loved Squid Game, which of course it would. Have you fucking seen Squid Game? Right? <laughs> Um, I haven't. I'm an uncultured swine. Oh my god! It's 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 just it's and and they called it a film too. Like the story was so blatantly fake, they made it sound like a movie. Also, how do you smuggle that in? What are their DVDs? A Squid Game out there that they rent? I don't know. I guess I guess the idea is that you've got some thumb drive. Like Netflix is like Netflix is just going to allow someone to download Squid Game and then run off with the thumb drive. Which I mean, I guess I don't know if LimeWire is still a thing for Netflix shows. I assume pirating is still a thing. I assume that piracy is still a thing. True, but if it's Netflix produced, I assume it's a little harder to pirate. Um, I can still take a video of that on my phone. Yeah, that's true. but nonetheless, yeah, I mean, they, they talk about this person smuggling it in. This is a movie that, like, the DPRK would love, but they, you know, it's got to be these, the, the crazy Asian monsters that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's all this fucking, you know, yellow peril, this, this Orientalism that some backwards Asian people are just angry and, and they're just so horrible. And of course, you know, people hear that. And then the first thing they go is like, man, I know it's bad here, but, at least that's not where I live, which is that's that's a big part of the, that. And of course, the other part is to, to foment, you know, um, tacit support for all of the aggression the U.S. does towards the DPRK. So it's a twofold fomenting of racism and anti-communism that just lets capitalism chug on. It's it's both of those are good enough reasons that we should debunk that shit, even though it's so goddamn dumb. It should be debunking itself because people believe fucking anything because they're so goddamn gullible about it. Yep. Anything from official U.S. sources, good to go. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that being said, uh, in in slightly more positive, I don't know, it's impossible to feel positive about this, but the uh, Ahmed Aubrey <sighs> trial yes. uh, concluded and, and verdicts were read out today, and all three men involved in that heinous killing uh, were convicted. Of varying degrees of murder charges, so yes, all, of them, all all three of the murderers were convicted of murder. It's um, good now, to know that sometimes. Well, a couple days ago, people got acquitted for murder, David. So I exactly. got confused. No, I know, I know, I know, but I'm just being clear about what happened. I know, uh, I know. some racist murderers were convicted of murder, which is so, shockingly, as we found out. Uh, well, I mean, not shockingly, if you know the system, but terrifyingly. Um, rare in this system. And of course, even when it does happen, that's, that's not a delivery of justice, right? No. I mean, there's a reason we, we are prison abolitionists. We certainly want, you know, the cops and the racists that do the same thing as cops, including when they're ex-cops, like one of these fuckers, mm. uh, to be punished in the system that like, supposedly punishes people and solves these problems with this and like you know have those um consequences land on them too we we always want them to be found guilty we want this kind of verdict when this happens um but we also recognize that this doesn't solve anything right this didn't 
prevent this, right? This doesn't, the racism is not going to go away. Racists aren't going to be scared to be racist or commit this kind of lynching just because of this one verdict or even if more verdicts went like this, right? We need a more holistic approach that resolves the problem in the first place. And with this specific type of problem, it means wresting power away from white supremacy and directing it towards the marginalized communities. And we mean like real, real militarized power. Right. Um, and this is a part of why we want to burn the whole damn thing down. And most importantly, as Kwame Ture points out, you know, revolutionaries don't destroy, revolutionaries create. We want to create a more just system. That is what we're here for. That's what we're doing with this entire reading of theory and, and everything. Absolutely. And speaking of reading theory, let's get back to it. Uh, starting with. The main consortia, which are being established in the majority of the new states, resolve largely about the same financial and industrial groups that have rooted themselves firmly since the inception of colonial rule. Such changes are there as there are corresponded with the changes of influence that have occurred within the groups themselves. The dominating influence is held by the ubiquitous American formations of Morgan and Rockefeller, with their British and European associates following behind. Dying colonialism is reviving in the international coalitions of neocolonialism. These coalitions of competing organisms reflect the global character that financial monopoly has attained under the dominance of the most powerful imperialism, that of America. They are also a sign of the struggle for survival, the older imperialisms against the fear, survival of the older imperialisms against the fierce questing of the more powerful aggressiveness of American imperialism, whose vaster productive force is driving it outwards more and more. Attempts are made to sweeten the well-known aims of rapidly disintegrating political colonialism, the maintenance of less developed areas of the world as the providers of cheap raw materials, spheres of investment, and markets for expensive finished goods and services. The finished goods and services, now that the population of new nations are asserting their demand for a rising standard of life, are taking on a different character and overspilling into categories formerly neglected. Land clearing equipment, hydroelectrical projects, road reconstruction, housing, schools, hospitals, harbors, airports, and all the ancillary and supplementary services they call for are providing new fields of capital investment and profit for financial monopoly both at home and abroad. They are also keeping in handsomely paid employment a large army of so-called experts, technical, professional people, not always of the highest caliber. New sources of extractive and agricultural commodities are also attracting large capital investment sums. Former dependence upon domestic sources of many minerals in the metropolitan countries is giving place to their importation from abroad. Miners in the copper and ore producing regions of the United States, for example, are being thrown out of work, not only because of automation, but also because bigger profits are being obtained from the greatly stepped up mining base mining of base materials in Africa and Asia. In some places, their semi-processing also offers greater margins that can be got in the areas of more expensive labor. Puerto Rico and other Latin American countries that offer cheap labor are fast becoming centers of manufactured consumer goods, frequently progressed, processed from imported raw materials and sent to the United States to compete with American-produced commodities at only slightly reduced or the same prices. This gives greater profits still to finance capital. 
The intricate process of balancing returns from domestic investment against the outflow of capital into more profitable foreign investment is creating serious rifts in the internal economic position of every Western capitalist country. This is felt particularly in the balance of payments position. Even the United States, whose reserves of gold and foreign exchange were so vast that they have carried her through a growing outward current over a long period, has now reached the stage when, like her less fortunate European counterparts, she is herself entering upon an adverse balance of payments crisis. Despite the rise in national production and increased productivity, the problems of agriculture, even in such rapidly rising economies as Western Germany, Italy, and France, bedevil the economic situation. In America, the farming smallholder still lives close to even below the poverty line. While the extensive mechanized farms of banker-financed companies are spoon-fed by a banker's government. Guaranteed prices for produce that goes into government-paid and government-built storages make large-scale farming in the United States highly profitable to finance capital, which passes on to the government the burdensome problem of what to do with unsold surpluses resulting from high prices. Is it terrifying that an African... Now, I know he went to school in America for like 10 years, but an African man in the 50s can better describe the American economy today than like yeah, any nope, American... That, that pretty that, well nails it. <laughs> that should be concerning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he hit on the whole... Pro- he, basically, you can start seeing this and you can start like sewing together the, the, the threads that, that make the, the entire... I'm going too far with this analogy of a quilt. Um, <laughs> that, that make the entire story of how America becomes a service economy, right? You know, I mean, we go to these other countries, we rip out their raw materials, we bring them back here to manufactured and then most of the time we don't even manufacture it here because another country that we've destroyed it's easier to get the cheap labor from there but our country still realizes those profits because the capitalists the people profiting off it are still in the metropole they're still in the united states right and then and then he turns around and describes farming and basically describes everything except the huge amounts of unnecessary purposeful food waste for price fixing in the united states he's covered the rest of it exactly how it happens and how small farms are crushed and america's quote-unquote farmers are usually just huge businesses who underpay migrant workers david do you want to take over reading Absolutely. Uh, The need of further outlets for the products of agriculture as well as the industrial and commercial complexes that are coming under increasing electronic control and hence acquiring a greatly increased potential is forcing Western capitalism, particularly American capitalism, into greater and more intensive involvement in highly industrialized foreign countries. The recent chicken farce played out against the background of de Gaulle's anti-American policy, which led Franco-German opposition to a continuation of cheaper American poultry importation into Europe, is just one of the lighter examples of the fierce competition going to unload the output of the bank-financed, vigorously mechanized mass production. I kind of want to know what the chicken farce was. Well, it sounds like they were trying to uh, import a bunch of, of excess poultry. Mm-hmm. into uh they they they, they were france and germany, excess yeah. poultry and they were trying to flood the german and french market because they had overproduced yeah uh, uh, it, it highlighted for a moment the intrinsically paradoxical nature of the european market as a monopolistic organism putting up a strong resistance to a dominant competitive monopoly The competitive tug-of-war is exemplified in the relative higher tariffs that have now been put on French and German small cars imported in the United States, which have lost their main advantage over the home-produced article in the consequent higher price. 
facts and figures prove that trade and investment between the highly industrialized countries are outpacing those with the less developed regions. They effectively support the case that imperialism is not confined to the primary producing A sectors of the world. However, the salient fact is that the profit rate from the exploitation of the less developed areas is greater than that received from the more industrialized countries. In the latter, the competition between the monopolies is fiercest in domestic interests, even those which are linked with international finance monopoly, all the time offer the stoutest resistance to invading ones. Yet this is precisely due to their imperialist character. The dominating world financial groups are able to make their constant incursions into the national monopolies and so deepen their hegemony over larger and larger parts of the globe. How much easier then it, it is for imperialist finance to edge its way more and more into the developing countries where the colonial rule was bro- has broken or is breaking down? Under the necessity of seeking greater and greater capital sums for geological explorations and the opening up of new fields of extractive materials, international finance was called to the aid of the national finance of the respective imperialist countries. This process was stimulated by the fact that the national finance monopolies had already proceeded to the stage of international alliance with the onset of imperialism a process that is manifoldly quickened in the present epochs of rising nationalism and socialism thus at the present time all the instruments and mechanics of international imperialism expressed in monopoly coalitions are brought to bear in a general descent upon the new needy countries so again i mean you have these monopolies and they're basically world monopolies right this is talking about the united states and 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 even with this poultry fiasco right it has essentially a world chicken monopoly because it just outpaces these european markets and and like you were saying you know it flooded the markets and it crashed the prices that's why tariffs and what was immediately cited by Nkrumah on the way back, why tariffs are needed to uphold the prices, uh, of course, with cars going the other direction. So everything's free market, free market, free market, until you have all the power and that free market doesn't give you an advantage. Then you slap on a tariff and keep the prices up uh, to keep your local stuff up. So you, you're a powerful monopoly that's dictating the entire market. And this is the only way that competition still works between countries, right? The United States is not going to war with Germany, but the United States and, and German, you know, car companies and banks and, and poultry companies and farm companies and oil companies are all going to compete with each other. And so, of course, when they all turn their power towards an opportunity in the global south, who's going to stop them if they can compete with each other, if they can cut through national lines with each other and know that push comes to shove, they have their country's backing because they really have the power that controls the government. Exactly. Not, though, according to that fun chart that came out on Twitter the other day that said what conspiracy theories are, because America yeah. as a corporation is not is a detached from reality. Apparently, uh, that's 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 an insanely detached from reality. Yeah, I just uh, I don't as is Iran Contra, of course. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I pay that. No Twitter's a, Twitter's a hellscape. Don't go on there, people. Yeah, You're better than that. Don't go on there. And that's more than Twitter. I mean, that's again, we wouldn't care about what is said on Twitter if it wasn't reflected in real life. We're not here for Twitter debates. This is for theory. We're here for you to go out and practice in your organizations in real life and build things and make an impact on people's lives. Make sure people are fed. Make sure people are educated. Make sure people are empowered. Make sure people have clothing and housing and make sure people understand how to resist, you know, things um, such as I suddenly can't 
can't think of the, the word of being kicked out by a, a landlord. Um, evicted. Evicted. You know, make sure people res- can resist evictions and arrests and, you know, things like that. Make sure people understand their options, you know, with, with medical bills from, from, you know, hospitals trying to, to suck the lifeblood out of people penny by penny. You know, th- these are the things we need to be out there doing. But the reason we care about some of this stuff is social media, like many other forms of, of media, um, is an expression of reality. Um, just filtered by whoever's in charge of presenting it. Um, and so when you see that thing on social media, that's representative of there's a large bent of liberalism that thinks that, right? Like they earnestly will just, again, you say the DPRK is disappearing people and sentencing them to death for smuggling in, you know, uh, Squid Game. Okay, they, they're just on board. Cool. You know, you say Russia hacked the 2016 and 2020 elections. Yeah, cool. You know, you say you say Black Lives Matter and racism is a, is a Chinese and Russia instigated divide. And maybe some of them kind of go, eh, but some of them are like, okay, cool, I'm on board. And yet they'll look at you like, you know, when you say, hey, the CIA topples countries and lies. Hey, Iran-Contra was a very real fucking thing. Hey, you know, the CIA put crack cocaine in the streets through Skid Row in the 80s. They're responsible for the cocaine trade in the CIA and the DEA, especially through Colombia, but throughout the global south, are are basically in charge of all illicit drugs. Hey, if you've ever heard of anyone actually having like marijuana lined with something, usually that's just cops making shit up. But the times where it is real, it's probably some feds because why the fuck would any drug dealer blow money on that shit like that and hide resources like that instead of selling that as some kind of bonus, right? Or just not fucking selling that dangerous thing and selling both products, which would probably make them even more money. You know, and and you say things like that and then they think you're you're the same as fucking, you know, Alex Jones and and people that say like chemtrails are coming out of airplanes to poison your brain and shit, you know, and lizard people and whatever the fuck. And and that's a serious problem. And it's it's serious problem. It's a big reason why I cannot stand the very thought of the word conspiracy theory, even if we of course, you know, just a shorthand because everyone is used to that language, use it when it comes up from time to time. Yep. This new wave of predatory invasion of former colonies operates behind the international character of the agencies employed, financial and industrial consortia, assistance organizations, financial aid bodies, and the like. Friendly cooperation is offered in the educational, cultural, and social domains, aimed at subverting the desirable patterns of indigenous progress to the imperialist objectives of the financial monopolists. These are the latest methods of holding back the real development of new countries. These are the paraphernalia of neocolonialism, superficially proffering aid and guidance, subterraneously benefiting the interested donors and their countries in old and new ways. There are several definitions of aid, as B. Chango Machoyo in his Aid in Neocolonialism has pointed out. The definition varies with different blocks. Thus, the UN has its own definition, the imperialist camp has its own, Eighty of the, has the socialist camp, and probably the non-aligned camp might also have one. But generally speaking, there are two main definitions, one by the UN and another as understood by the so-called donor countries. According to the UN, economic aid consists only of outright grants and long-term lending for non-military purposes by government and international organizations. But the so-called aid-giving countries include in the term aid, private capital investments and export credits, even for relatively short periods, as well as loans for military purposes. 
As Professor Benham in Economic Aid to Underdeveloped Countries remarks, it is pleasant to feel that you are helping your neighbors and at the same time increasing your own profits. Before the decline of colonialism, what today is known as aid was simply foreign investment. I, I really like, I, I don't know how ironic Professor Benham is trying to be here with that quote, but if if it was meant to be ironic, that is incredible and wonderful. Yeah, yeah. it is It is something, and that is, is the end of that is a, that is the end of chapter three. Yeah. We are 25% of the way through this book on episode five, which puts us at a, assuming all the chapters are roughly equal, about a, a 25, 25 episode series on this one. So we're, we're chugging right along. I was going to say, that's like six months. That is a blistering pace compared to what we did with the last book. I don't know hey. how we're going to do this. I, I I think I can get comfortable with the idea of finishing works within a two-year time span. I think I can get used to that. I, I'd be okay with it. I mean, that's um, fine, but I was just looking at what book we do next and thought, man, 2023, we'll figure that shit out. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. We'll have, to pick, we'll have to pick a new baby here soon. Um, moving on, though, to chapter four. Money, capitalism, and the American dollar. Ooh, this one will be fun. And and correction, it was monopoly capitalism and the American dollar. Monopoly capitalism and the American dollar. I, yes, those are the words. (laughs) The end of empire has been accompanied by a flourishing of other means of subjugation. The British empire has become the commonwealth, but the proceeds from the exploitation of British imperialism are increasing. Profits of British tin companies have ranged as high as 400%. The latest dividends to British diamond shareholders are close to 350%. On one occasion, Mr. Nehru declared that British profits from independent India had more than doubled, and British capital investment in his country rose from 265 rupees in 1948 to 4,460 rupees million. Oh, God. Yeah, Yeah. it's a lot of money, guys. In 1960. (laughs) It doubled. We'll just say that. It doubled from 1948 to 1960. A big number became a bigger number. The total British investments in Africa have soared to 65... 65 million rupees, 65,000 million rupees to the French to about 7,000 million and American to 1,100 million. A recent survey made plain the plunder of British monopolies. It listed nine out of 20 of Britain's biggest monopolies as direct colonial exploiting companies. Shell, British Petroleum, British American Tobacco, Imperial Tobacco, Burma Oil, Nekanga Copper, Rokana Corporation, Rhodesian Mines, and British South Africa, five of which are directly engaged in chiseling away Africa's natural resources. The others are busily increasing their trading. Their total of 221 million pounds net profits was over half the combined net profits of the top 20 monopolies. Incredibly, the list leaves out two of the world's greatest combine, those states within a state, Unilever and Imperial Chemical Industries. I wonder what ICI turned into. Because I, I don't know that name. Maybe it still exists. I don't know, but uh, that that makes me have an inkling for remembering when we talked about how Europe underdeveloped Africa and read that little section on Unilever. That by, whole section on Unilever, yeah. Yeah, Walter Rodney. And I guess I knew Unilever was big, and I knew it uh, horribly exploited um, Africa for natural resources and was one of the big monopoly conglomerates. But I never really thought of it like outsizing the other stuff the the you know nestle's and colgate palm olives and stuff but it seems like anytime we're talking about africa it it comes up as as the guy it seems to yep uh 
ICI was a giant chemical company in Britain. It was bought out by Axo Noble in 2008. Mm. Okay. Big giant petrochemical company. Not surprising. Yeah. The United Africa Company leads for Unilever in Africa, and about a third of ICI and its subsidiaries operate overseas. Sir Alec Douglas Holm, former Prime Minister of Britain's Tory government, in a speech made on 20th March 1964, professed himself ignorant of the meaning of neocolonialism. While Sir Alec was busy talking, Britain was engaged in what its press was busy describing as major crises areas all over the world, putting down troubles inspired and perpetrated by neocolonialism. Aden and Southern Arabia against Yemen, Borneo and Sarawak against Indonesia, Cyprus, British Guiana, maintaining law. Oh, where did I go? Again, oh, I'm sorry. Take that back. Aden and Southern Arabia against Yemen, Borneo and Sarawak against Indonesia, Cyprus, British Guiana, maintaining law and order in Kenya, Tanganyika. Uganda, for the recently independent governments, is this the end of imperialism? Not according to The Economist, mouthpiece of Britain's Britain's business investments. He wanted to tweak Lenin's wording yeah, a little bit. Yeah, slight, slight change to what Lenin said, but slight change. not wrong. <laughs> not wrong. Which felt compelled to comment. Military bases, routes to the east, frontier skirmishing, putting down mutinies, all of this has a 19th century ring quite naturally disturbing to those who had hoped that the end of colonialism meant the end of military involvement east of Suez. The knobbly truth of the matter turns out to be that for the moment, Britain has as many military commitments in the area as it ever had before colonies were replaced by Commonwealth. The intention is to hold back the progress of the developing countries, where circumstances favor the establishment of ventures of a more than token industrial character. The aim is to see that they are made haughtily. The overriding objective is to induce a merely fractional increase in the industrial scope of the new nation in order that they may continue to provide the sinews of imperialism's greater concentration of forces for the final tussle of strength within itself and against socialism. What is remarkable is that the major part of the less developed world, and here we must include the USSR, chose and is choosing the socialist road to national progress. There are, in addition, countries like India, where the political system, though patterned on the bourgeois democracies of capitalism, nevertheless proclaim socialism as the socioeconomic objective. The nations that have reached their present peaks by passing through the various stages of capitalism cling desperately to the system that has brought them to the heights of imperialism. Each perched perilously on a narrow summit must put up a constant battle to guard its own pinnacle. And how I wish some of these battles went a little better from the the yeah. pathway that Nkrumah was seeing. Because obviously, yeah. you know, this was tending that way, and it hasn't stopped. It's just that, that the power of imperialism has gripped so tightly. Yep. Um, greater intensity is infused into the struggle by resurgence of rivals, of whom Germany and Japan are the most viral. Both of them have benefited from the strong injections of American capital, and U.S. monopolies are drawing off considerable profits from the running that is being made by the two countries in world competition, pointing the contradictions among the interests involved. Competing against American imperialism, German and Japanese monopolists are frequently in alliance with the USA, or with their USA opposites, who often put them forward in imperialism's general offensive agents against Africa, where open United States private investment might be regarded with 
with more suspicion than others. Germany, moreover, is now second to the USA in scale of so-called assistance to developing countries. Since capitalism is the embodiment of the philosophy of self-interest, the ostensible allies of American monopolists must use the position of strength to which they are being thrust to promote their own growth. So now this is talking, I mean, explicitly about American hegemony and how it works, right? Mm -hmm. This struggle for ascendancy among the imperial imperialisms is continuous and involves a constant search for renewal of the sinews of strength alongside the battle for imperial supremacy the the their wage that seems weird that they that doesn't seem like the right word but it says there their wages the fight oh no okay like a position their wages the fight against the ideological camp of socialism into which warring imperialists make an all-out effort to trail the developing countries as their appendages in this way the anti-communist campaign is used to further imperialist aims leaders of monopoly capitalism everywhere build up in the public mind an image of the system in social in sociocultural terms by which they transform it into an idealized harmonious civilization that must be cherished at all costs. They harp upon a way of life that may be altered only to its detriment and stress its continuity as a major principle in the fight against communism. When Harold Macmillan, as Prime Minister of Britain, told the South African Parliament that what is now on trial is much more than our military strength and our diplomatic and administrative skill, it is our way of life, he epitomized the metaphysical transmutation of economic impulses into a social philosophy. This, in spite of his reference to the winds of change blowing across Africa. He echoed several statesmen of the West, many of whom have made the statement and indeed have had a different have had at different times and in almost identical words, the great issue in this second half of the 20th century is whether uncommitted peoples of Asia and Africa will swing to the East or the West. All powerful interests of nations are decided that the new state shall develop along the capitalist path, the provisioners of imperialism's vile needs, the source of its super profits, national liberation and the obvious advantages of social development Socialist development for nations evolving out of colonialist domination and without the capital means for making that development are major factors in determining imperialist strategy towards these nations in both the interests of its internal struggle and the fight against socialism. So this is I, I, I love how he's talking. I mean, he's talking specifically about waxing poetic about our way of life and how we have yeah. to defend against the, you know, I mean, again, and it's very plain, you know, the Cold War matters to them quite a bit ideologically, right? And it matters mm-hmm. on the home front internally to drive people away from, from socialism, but it has a dual character. It's also used as, you know, a, an excuse, right? A, a pivot to, to, work on these imperialist aims and to, to use to sabotage because we have to defend against socials. We have to defend against communism. And we've seen that. We just talked about that earlier with current events, right? It was yellow, yellow peril. And then it was the red scare. And then it was, you know, Islamophobia. And now it's kind of back to the mixed, you know, yellow peril, red scare again. And, and the Islamophobia, the orange away. terror. Yeah. The orange terror. <laughs> I've been think I've been trying to think of one for like the whole episode. Ever since you started saying red and yellow, I was like, "There's got to be an orange bit in there somewhere. I'll find it." Um, now that screws us up because that's what they called Trump. So God damn it! Uh, oh, son of a bitch! All right, fine. I'll I'll come up with better things. Um, but anyway, um, but you know, you have that. There's always this basis, this excuse to go to war. But really, the entire time, right? 
It's about natural resources. You know, internally they care about socialism. They don't want the, like, say the United States or, you know, if they're in Great Britain, Great Britain to turn socialist. That kills their interest. They need to hold their power and hold their economic system that props them up. But outside of their borders, they don't, like, the economic system of the other countries being socialism isn't a threat except that it cuts off their imperialist aims to access the natural resources and upkeep the, you know, unbalanced labor relations and, and the things like that, right? That's what really scares them. Of course, they want socialism squashed. They want it to be the bad guy. They want to see it fail. They want Americans or, or you know, uh, Britons or whoever to be afraid to try socialism at home. But they nope. really, really want to make sure they keep their imperialism up they keep getting their resources and it's just an excuse and it's why it transitioned so smoothly into islamophobia after the the fall of the ussr and and the events of of uh, september 11th yep all countries even the most deeply involved in monopoly imperialism have a state sector indeed state involvement in private economy has become an essential part of its process it should cause no surprise, therefore, that developing countries, particularly in view of the small accumulations of local private capital, are obliged to centralize their economies. The size of the state sector and its planned expansion, however, must depend on the economic system which is chosen, capitalist or socialist. The aim of the imperialist powers in the application of their aid programs is to turn the state sector into an appendage of private capital. In view of the process that has been evolved in the imperialist countries, it would be surprising if this were not so. The declared basic policy of the Agency for International Development, formerly International Cooperation Administration, is to employ United States assistance to aid receiving countries in such a way as will encourage the development of the private sectors of the economy. Thus, ICA will normally not be prepared to finance publicly owned industrial and extractive enterprises, although it is realized that there may be exceptions. Development in the new countries along non-capitalistic lines must be frustrated in the interest of Western imperialism. A series of articles which appeared in The Times in April 1964 outlined the pattern and made no secret of its reasons. The two great objects of Britain's foreign policy must be to prevent the non-communist world from being penetrated by communism, and secondly, to prevent her own access to trade and investment in any part of the world from being barred or limited. Naturally enough, as the article concludes, both these objects lead straight into the neocolonial issue, the struggle for influence, commercial and political, over the non-communist countries outside Europe and North America. Thus succinctly does the writer in the Times expose the true character of the ideological struggle between monopolies. Leading this ideological struggle, because she leads the inter-imperialist struggle, is the USA. As the world's leading imperialist power, America lays successor claim to the so-called vacua which the retiring colonial powers are said to leave behind as they give way to nationalist governments. Vietnam and Congo are very obvious symbols of this policy of rabid neocolonialism. They are also examples of bitter antagonisms between America and other imperialisms. According to the France Observateur, issue 4 June 1964, the darkest accusations are made by the U.S. against French business circles operating in South Vietnam. American exports in Asian affairs assert that French planters are not content with paying their might to the South Vietnam National Liberation Front. They will even lend assistance and hide the guerrillas pursued by the government's army. In spite of its policy of open aggression in many parts of the globe, the United States frequently poses as the anti-colonial power in condemnation of British imperialism. The pose is thin, and the mass continually falls, even often af over critical anti-colonial 
colonialist resolutions pressed by the Afro-Asian and socialist majority in the United Nations. When the United States and Britain find themselves alone, or only with France, Portugal, South Africa, and Australia voting against or abstaining. In the last nine years, American investments on this continent have trebled, growing at a faster rate than in any other area. In 1961 alone, monopolies profited by some 11 to 12 million pounds, which they took out of Africa. So there's a couple of things. First off, you can very much tell this was written in the 60s, not just from all the cited years and, and from the life path we know Nkrumah has, but also he spelled out the name of USAID, mentioning USAID, and still called it the ICA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I think it changed names what like 61 62 something like that something like that um, it's it's funny yeah um but he's talking about here you know the the United States talks a big game about anti colonial and it still does that today right it's it's the the United States is liberating people that's a big thing for balkanization you know um the United States is is liberating these ethnic groups against oppression supposedly right that's that was the idea behind Rajava that's the idea uh behind this you know Tigrayan separation and this this backing of the um uh, TPLF's you know attempted coup in Ethiopia right now it's a very very common strategy in balkanization to over essentialize ethnic groups and then claim one historically oppressed one is being stood with when they're very much a puppet and won't be left empowered when the United States leaves in order to advance its imperialist aims. And so it makes sense that it's also doing this, you know, faux necolonial thing. But like they said, you know, then you get to the big voting things and you can see the United States is either only paired up with these Western countries and these settler colonies or voting by itself. And you see that now, right? Like trips, you see, you know, United States. States, Australia, New, Z- New Zealand, Canada, Europe votes, but but everybody else doesn't. You see, you know, condemnation of of you know China in in Xinjiang, and it's the United States and Canada and and nobody else. You know, all the Muslim countries, everybody else votes otherwise. You see, uh, what is the thing is like? You know, is calling food a human right, and it was the United States voted for voted against it, and Israel like abstained, and even like Canada and Great Britain, and everybody was like. No, yeah, it's, it's it's even right. Sure, why not? Like yeah. you know, it's it's always you see these votes and it always sticks out. <laughs> yep. The rising tide of nationalism in the colonial territories was remarked by the shrewder operators of the United States finance capital as America's opportunity to insinuate itself into what were the jealously guarded preserves of rival imperialisms. Anti-imperialist stirrings had begun to show themselves in Asia and Africa before the outbreak of the last world war. As hostilities progressed, America came out more and more openly for the ending of colonial rule. Press and other public propaganda harked back to America's own fight against colonialism. The remembrance was linked in people's minds with the budding nationalist movements that were bringing overt pressure for independence around the globe. War-torn Europe would provide part of the answer to America's need to export investment capital and goods, but territories newly released from political power of rival imperialisms would offer practically virgin fields. A fabulous growth in American monopoly capitalism occurred during the first 40 years of the present century. United States foreign investments vied with those of Europe, overtook and surpassed them in 19... United States foreign investments vied with those of Europe, overtook, and surpassed them. In 1900, American private foreign investments were small by comparison with Europe's 50 million, 500 million, to Britain's 12 million, and France's 600 million. 
1930, the growth rate of America's foreign investment had already overheaped those of Britain, standing at 17 million against the latter's 19 million, and way ahead of France's 7 million. America's foreign investment position was supreme by 1949, 19 million against Britain's 12. The level at which it had opened the century, France's level had sunk to 2 million. The First World War eliminated Germany's foreign investments and those of, reduced those of France. The Second World War eliminated Germany, Italy, and Japan. The American government, moreover, had added 14 million to its monopolists, 19 million of private foreign aid. The government loans are political loans rather than direct profit-making investments, but they enhance the position of United States finance capital by providing markets for surplus goods and increasing the profits of private American investors in the borrowing countries. The Second World War gave explosive momentum to American capitalism and helped it to increase its overseas investment and exports of manufactured goods to the colonial preserves of European and Japanese imperialism. In the decade 1938-48, to 48, America's share of the imports into those territories rose from 11% to 25%. Her African trade in the period went from $150 million to $1,200 million, at which figure it represented almost 15% of all Africa's foreign trade. American monopoly's appetite was whetted by the income of 18 million, 18,000 million, I'm sorry, by which it had profited from as a, its foreign investment in the period 1920 to 1948. By the way, just, just so everyone knows, we're not saying thousand million because like we're crazy people that don't know a billion exists. It's just written out like that and it's hard to switch gears while you're reading. Yeah, my brain don't work that fast, gang. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, net profits came to 8,300, 8.3 billion, to which can be added millions of dollars in trading profits, interest on loans, freight charges, and other ancillary operations. All of this has hel- was helped by, along by Marshall Aid, the Economic Cooperation Administration, born out of the marriage between the American state and monopoly. The dollar was brandished as the universal cure-me-quick for Europe, bringing fat super profits to its American owners. In the confusion and devastation left by war, they were a, bleh, they were to slip unobtrusively into the cozy corners from which the European imperialists would be edged out, both from Europe and its territories overseas. American financial and industrial capital used the opportunity which Europe's post-war weakness offered to draw upon its resources. It fed on war-ruined Europe, though not to the same degree as Western imperialism exploited the colonial and semi-colonial world. The powerful German metallurgical and chemical trusts Varengate, Stahlwerk, and IG Farben were broken down. The West German state, established in 1949, came under a military occupation that controlled its foreign trade, its foreign policy, and mm-hmm. defense. Of the factories which had escaped wartime destruction, some were dismantled. Many of Germany's best scientists and technicians were lured to America and Britain. Operation Paperclip, hello. Uh, The secrets and patents of the large trusts were appropriated. The archives of the most important bank, the Deutsche Bank, turned over to the occupying forces by Dr. Hermann J. Abs. Hitler's despoiler of Yugoslavia, who was saved from the death to which he was condemned first by the British and then by American military authorities. Germany was being made safe for the democracy of its imperialist conquerors. The Marshall Plan was used to push American imperialist penetrations into the fragmented German industries and financial institutions, in which it bought heavily. Large sums were also handed out to French and Belgian mining concerns in order to tighten the links with American capitalism and support its domination. An eye also had to be kept on the socialism that was advancing in Europe and Asia. Before the opening of the 1950s, the Cold War began to heat up. 
It was felt that the threat of heavy German competition, which had inspired the limitations upon which it was uh, upon it by the victorious imperialisms, West could be cushioned by drawing Germany into Western strategy and by greater participation from the United States capital. Germany's mm-hmm. position in the metallurgical and chemical fields began to change as that country was drawn into an overall pattern of Western defense. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we will end it for the week. Uh, if you wanted to reach out to us for any reason, you can absolutely do that. There are three different ways. You can email us at uh, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on Twitter. We are at marksmadnesspod on Twitter. Uh, and if you wanted to have a more in-depth conversation or just talk day to day and kind of hang out and vibe and chill, well, then Discord is the place for you. Uh, the link to our Discord is in our Twitter bio, and it is just a fun community of people and comrades and everyone of all all communist. They're all communists. I was going to try and make it more inclusive, but it is pretty exclusive. It's communists. Um, <laughs> we all hang out and, and do our do our thing. It's a good time. You're more than welcome to join, and I highly encourage it. Um, that being said, David, time for a disclaimer. Absolutely. So uh, when we started this, you know, Nathan came up to me and was going to read Capital and was like, hey, this is a book you usually read with more than one person, and you've read this before. Can we read this together? Which was a great idea, because anytime you're reading theory or history, you want to be reading it with a group of people. You want to be making sure you understand the context, get different perspectives, uh, get the most out of it. And it also helps, you know, remember it, let it sink in a little bit, too. And so since the beginning, we started recording it, wondering if our reading group would be a little more than two people, and lo and behold, it turned into that and the entire time since that inception we've been hoping that you know whatever group you're out in whatever uh, organizing you're doing uh, you guys have a reading group or a political education group and are reading these works along with us and we can be another voice in that reading group we can be um, another point of context or tying back to our lives today um, or whatever you know along those lines we can be um, let you know say for that let's say that you know your group is reading something shorter or reading something more applicable to a project you're working on and we can be that reading group we can give you that point of uh, emphasis uh, that point of reread that point of understanding context and tying it back to today um you know hopefully we can do that and let's say we're not doing that let's say you know it's either a work that we're summarizing more or something like this we're more of an enhanced ebook whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want this theory out there and we want it guiding your actions okay especially like this now is talking explicitly these last few paragraphs about the rise of US hegemony and exactly how it worked and um, you know the process of imperialism overall and we of course have to be fighting that imperialism right now as we see the rise of a new cold war um, so, you know, we're certainly hoping that um, whatever you're doing, this theory is out there guiding you. Any actions you take based on that theory transform into something called praxis, which is theory and action. And they should be part of a larger political process in order to politically educate people, build networks of power, of sustainability, of um, assistance, things like that. And then without that praxis, there's no point to this theory. It means nothing. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.